Uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Ian Lewins, uh, the host of the, the show. Uh, I'm a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine uh, in Derby. Um, and I'm really pleased to be joined by uh, today by Dr. Helen Newsom, uh, who's a clinical fellow in paediatric emergency medicine uh, up in Sheffield. Uh, good afternoon, Helen. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Uh, enjoying the sunny weather for once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we've we've talked before when you were located somewhere even sunnier uh, in Zambia, and that, that didn't quite work. So I'm very grateful for you to come back onto the show um, to talk about a paper that you wrote that was published in the Archives of Disease in Childhood back in December of, of 2019. And that was in the Archimedes section of the journal. For, for those people who are not familiar with Archimedes, can you, can you sort of explain what it is to people? So it's the education and practice part of the um, RCPCH's education journal. Their aim is to put articles out that help answer clinical questions, short pieces that are easy to read, easy to digest, that just help you inform your practice and do a bit more evidence-based um in your daily life yeah absolutely um and it's, it's a bit i really particularly enjoy um and this article something that struck a real nerve with me because it's something that we're faced with in the children's ed very frequently so i really liked it which is why we sort of wanted you on the show um and your article looked at the use of ct in children with minor head injuries with isolated vomiting um why did you go about picking this as, as a sort of a question you wanted to look at I thought this as a question because actually I was working in general paediatrics at the time in a local DGH where any child who was under the age of two that had a head injury that needed observation or admission or CT went under shared care with the paediatrics team. Um, This is a child who just had a bit of isolated vomiting. They were absolutely fine. Like most of these children running havoc around the ward, um, tearing things to bits back to their usual self. But they'd had more than three episodes of vomiting, so the A&E consultant had done a CT head before sending them up to the ward for some further observation. It just seemed a bit unnecessary with a child who was entirely well that they'd been exposed to radiation and then a period of observation when actually, to my eyes, they were absolutely fine running around, like I said, tearing the ward to bits. So I just wanted to ask the question about actually, should we be CT in these children if they've just had vomiting as their only symptom, or is it actually safe just to watch and wait? Yeah. So for people sort of maybe with a more adult uh, focused approach to this, they would say, well, hang on, why wouldn't you CT? What what are the risks of, of having a CT head in a child? So there's obviously um, the radiation risks. So the, the evidence is it's about one in a thousand, one in five thousand lifetime mortality for scanning children's heads. And that increases the younger you are. So the younger we CT head children, the more likely it is there to have a adverse effect to the radiation. But there's also all the procedural effects of it. I mean, I don't know if anyone here has tried to get a two-year-old to lie still for any significant period of time, but it's difficult. Even for, you know, the 30 seconds of a CT, they thrash around, they move. And, you know, if you get into the point where you're thinking about sedating a child for a CT, you really need to question, do you actually need this investigation? Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And that's one of the sort of the worries is uh, if I now sedate this child you know, how much of their sleepiness is sedation and how much of their sleepiness is potentially an evolving significant head injury as well. So they are not without risks, both from the sedation and both from the the scan itself. Is that right? Yeah, I think we've got to be really careful when we're doing things like that. They said you then can mask other symptoms if you've given them sedation and they go to sleep for a while. 
or you can um, just give them unnecessary sedation, which could cause problems with respiratory drive. You then have to observe them closer. You take out nursing staff, medical staff when they're under sedation. It's all just a, a very big undertaking. And we just need to make sure, like I said, that we're doing necessary investigations. Okay. Um, and I noticed that you quoted in your article that, you know, isolated vomiting in kids with head injury is is pretty common. And I think that the figure quoted is something between 13 and, and almost 41% of children presented with minor head injuries vomit. So it's, it's, it's a common presenting feature. Yeah. I think what we often find is that the vomiting is entirely unrelated to the head injury. So, you know, services such as 111 often ask, have you had any head injuries in the last 72 hours when you phone up with vomiting? And if the answer is yes, say that you must go get medical review. So, you know, often the head injury and the vomiting might not be totally connected. And children vomit for a number of reasons. You know, some children are just prone to be vomiting. Some children have concurrent gastroenteritis. Some children have reflux, or, you know, posity babies. They're all vomiting all the time. And, you know, we need to then tease actually, is this vomiting related to the head injury or is it just normal for that child? Yeah, uh, and certainly in, in, there seems, seems to be something that the number of kids I've seen who've had a very, very minor head injury a day or so ago and then present with vomiting that you clearly think this smacks of gastroenteritis is huge, but it proposes a real potential diagnostic dilemma, doesn't it? Yeah, you then thinking, you know, can I safely say that, you know, that minor head injury was definitely unrelated to the vomiting? And I think that's where experience in paediatrics comes in and paediatric emergency medicine. Actually, the more you see children, the more you're aware that what what presentations they have are different things. But I think it's important that, you know, things like clinical decision rules are, are aimed for people with less experience. So we need to make sure they're very clear in guiding people making the correct decisions. Yeah. So let's have a, a sort of talk through the, the, the paper that you wrote and um, the structure for the Archimedes articles tends to, you know, start with a scenario, which, which you've kind of described, which is um, a young child, 22 months, witnessed for GCS 15 pretty well, um, but has had uh, uh, four vomits. Um, and you're sort of thinking, do I need to scan or not, or can I safely observe? And basically, that was the thrust of of of, of the scenario, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then the structured clinical question. Can you can you talk us through how you structured that? So you structure the clinical question in the form of a PICO question. So you think about your patient, your intervention, your comparison, and your outcome. So in this um, clinical question, the patient was you know children who sustain a minor head injury with isolated vomiting as the only symptom. So we're not we're talking about just isolated vomiting. Is a period of observation the intervention we're proposing compared with the CT head, the comparison or the current gold standard as good as predicting intracranial injuries? So that's our outcome. So you build the question up using your, your PICO um, formulation. Yeah. Um, so there's our, there's our PICO, there's our structured clinical question. And your search, I presume, was sort of a fairly standard um, Medline, Embase, those sorts of things. Yeah, so went on Medline and Embase and built up a clinical question. So you use different um, versions of doing the same word in the form of and or. So you can do head injury or brain injury or intracranial injury or cranial cerebral injury or any other forms you can think of that you might medically ask that question. The um, Ovid is a, is a search engine that will help with that. That will help you find other terms that are related. So if you put in head injury, it will ask you if you want to include all the other ors. 
and you can go through and choose them. And then you need to build up the second pass to your question. So you want head injury and CT or head injury and vomiting. And you go through building up the different terminology that could be used in papers to find that. And that gives you a long list of papers. And I think from my, my search last March, it got 203 results. And you go through and you read the, the blurb at the top, you read the, the start and see if it's relevant to your question. A lot of them weren't, and you end up rejecting yeah. quite a lot of them just on the abstract. Um, but I got two papers from that. And then once you've ad- identified your, your papers that you think are addressing your clinical question, then it's really good to look through their reference list. Because yeah. they've looked at other papers that might not come up in your search that will be looking at the same clinical question. And then once you've looked through the reference list, you then pulling other papers that will answer it. So I think in total, I got three that had a really good sort of um, look at this clinical question. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's so that was our search. And, and then there's a sort of a commentary um, that, that sort of follows on from what you found in the search. Um, and you've talked about these, you mentioned these sort of um, clinical decision rules. Um but there are there's more than one, isn't there? there? There are several for us to choose from potentially. Yeah, so there's there's three that are mainly aimed at children, which is pecan, uh, chalice, and catch. Um, in the UK, we use chalice, which is our basis for the nice guidelines. They're all looking at slightly different ways of looking for CT. So some of them look to see when you, who should scan, some to look to see who you shouldn't scan. Um, obviously, America and Canada have a slightly different approach to investigation medicine that we do in the UK and um, you've always got to take that into um, account when you're looking at these clinical decision rules you know does the population apply to the one we're working with you know can you bring it across from America to the UK population and is it actually asking the question you want it to ask yeah um, because it's sort of looking through it I, I guess one one of the the potential confounders is that you may if they if you're using different clinical decision rules in different studies you may not be comparing like for like a lot of the time yeah and they often ask slightly different questions and they've got slightly different inclusion and exclusion criteria for who to scan who not to scan um, I think for example P can have different rules for under two and over two which obviously yeah. then you have to separate it separate out your population where the rest don't so you do really have to think about when you're using clinical decision rules do it does it really apply to the patient in front of me and to do that you actually need to have a knowledge of what what the the original population was for that study which is really difficult when you're in an emergency you know busy emergency department or working on the shop floor because you can't hold all these cdrs in your head and you just right. get sort of trust that someone else has done that work for you just slightly going off a tangent do, do you think the fact that these are called clinical decision rules. The, the word rules, does that, versus it's a guidance, a guideline, do you think that sort of influences how people think about scanning or not scanning? Because I guess there's always a worry that if you do something and, God forbid, it was the wrong thing, people can go back and go, why didn't you follow the rule? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are very, um, you know, when something's called a rule, you feel like you absolutely must follow it. It's less... Um, less leeway than if you call something a guideline which I think is a really difficult line to tread because actually there is a lot of grey area in medicine very few patients fit absolutely into you know textbook and therefore would follow a rule nicely and you know most patients we see will have some element of um, ambiguity so we have to sort of think about where we are with that and use a bit of experience and common sense and that's really difficult Because actually, if you haven't had that experience, which is, you know, difficult to build up, you need to see a lot of children, 
then you are left relying on clinical decision rules and therefore you feel like you must follow them because actually any deviation, even if it doesn't feel like it fits that patient, you feel like any deviation might come back and you might get criticised for or there might be an adverse outcome for that patient, you know, and you always worry about not following the rules, as a, especially in medicine where we're very much taught that we must must follow rules. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, that you sort of found... Uh, say as you say sort of 203 results but actually when you whittled it down to things that really answered your question there were there were I think two two stroke three papers um and is that because you know you're specifically looking at vomiting isolated vomiting and a lot of the other papers had vomiting plus other things that they were looking at as decisions to whether to scan or not yeah very little has had previously until um, a paper in 2014 being done on isolated vomiting. Um, the majority of it was vomiting as a as a symptom, but not specifying if that was in isolation or in association with any of the symptoms of a, of a head injury being more significant, such as altered mental state, decreased GCS, um, headache, confusion. They didn't specify if it was isolated or non-isolated vomiting, which meant that a lot of those papers just had to be... Um, rejected from answering this clinical question because they didn't they didn't pull down to the minutiae of actually did this patient isolate and vomit and actually when you go back to the data they reanalyzed some of the papers they reanalyzed the PCAN data actually quite a lot of their patients they didn't record if it was isolated or non-isolated it was just they had to then really pull down through the notes to find specifically which ones were isolated because it wasn't very well documented right so lots of the papers did just you know they just weren't as relevant because they were just looking at things on the outside yeah so you you kind of whittled it down to these very few papers um so what did you find when you when you had a look through them so looking at the three papers so two were looking at um data and one was a scandinavian paper that was looking at redoing their guidelines so it was a um systemic systemic systematic review of the the papers so the first one i looked at was a dn Diana on Esso in 2014, and they reanalyzed the PCAN data. So the PCAN data originally had 42, just over 42,000 children yeah. who just suffered minor he- blunt head trauma, and they used them to form their PCAN clinical decision rule. Um, they only found that they had 815 patients that had isolated vomiting, and of those 815, um, only two had a clinically important traumatic brain injury so clinically important involves things such as being admitted for hospital for greater than two days requiring yeah. neurosurgery and requiring intubation for greater than 24 hours so something that's you know significant enough to involve a medical intervention so yeah. that only two out of the 815 had uh, a clinically important traumatic brain injury uh, which worked out as 0.2 percent and right. they only found that five um out of the 298 that had ct heads had anything on their CT. Obviously, the caveat with that is that, you know, often we find things on CT that actually are not showing any clinical signs, hence there'll be more, because actually these children didn't have any, didn't need admission, they didn't need neurosurgery, they didn't need intubation. They had very minor things on their CT, but obviously that came up because they were scanned due to, you know, being put down a, a route of, if you've got this, you should scan. Yeah. So very, very few um, that found that. And... Then I looked at a more recent paper, which was by Borland et al., which was in 2018. They looked at yep. the APRIS data, which is an Australasian, so Australian-New Zealand study looking at head injury in children. 
um, and they did lots of sub-analysis. So they did a massive cohort and they've done masses of sub-analysis about different parts of head injury and what we should be doing with children with minor head injuries. And they found they had um, 1,006 children in their study out of 19,920, so nearly 20,000 that had isolated vomiting. And they found very similar data to Diana Toll. They found that in that one out of 172 had, with their clinically important traumatic brain injuries, had isolated vomiting. So it was 0.3%. And two out of um, 285 that had CT heads with anything on it had isolated vomiting, so 0.6. So they found that actually very, very few children were present at all with any sort of either clinically important or CT findings that would include yeah. traumatic brain injury. And just showing that, you know, as we expect, very, very, very small numbers uh, have isolated vomiting. And they both concluded that isolated vomiting is safe to wait and see and see if they develop any other symptoms and wait and observe these children for a longer period of time. So longer than the four hours that we're doing in an emergency department. So you know, an overnight admission on a clinical um, assessment unit or under a paediatric team, just something to give a, you know, a, a period of observation where we can see if they develop any symptoms. And they found yeah. that in both of these studies, they found that any, if there's anything else associated with vomiting, so non-isolated vomiting, then actually these are really good predictors of there being something either clinically important, so clinical signs of, of a significant brain injury or CT findings of a brain injury. So if they're associated with anything else, such as suspicions of a skull fracture, altered mental state, headaches, uh, abnormal behaviour, or concerns about NAI, then these things massively increased your chance of having something either clinically yeah. or radiologically which is kind of you know i think what a lot of us do now is is take the vomiting as a very very soft sign but if it's vomiting plus then you know the the, the balance tips again doesn't it quite significantly yes it definitely does tip very significantly i think they all found that if you've got vomiting plus anything else then you've got to be really 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 think that actually we probably should be scanning these children and actually, if you think about the number of children we see with minor head injuries, actually seeing children with vomiting plus something else is quite uncommon. So actually, we wouldn't be scanning that that many children. And both studies found that it was quite difficult to look for um, CT findings in traumatic brain injury because very few children are scanned anyway. That actually, you know, out of the 20,000 or so in Borland at all, only 285 had a CT at all. Yeah. So actually, we're dealing with very small numbers when we're just looking at um, CT findings. I think one caveat to all this is that the older children get, the more important isolated vomiting is. Yes, and that's interesting because, you know, the, the adults take a very, very different kind of approach to vomiting, don't they? It's it's almost sort of one strike and you're out, isn't it? Yeah, any vomiting after a head injury in, children, in adults, they are very, very much going to scan and they feel that that's a very strong indication for being suspicious of a traumatic brain injury. And they've got some really good clinical decision rules in the adult world that have been very well validated. So I think just one of my take homes from this was actually be very careful of the, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old who, you know, has got more adult like physiology who is having recurrent vomiting because they are more likely to have something. And sometimes we need to, you know, listen to our adult colleagues, follow their advice and be actually have a different threshold with teenagers because they can cross the world of adults and paediatrics. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting that if you were, say, 17 and you happen to rock up at 
PZD and you vomit, you might not get a CT. But if you rock up to the adult ED next door with exactly the same symptoms, you'll, you will get a CT. Yeah, exactly. Depending on which stream you go down, you'd get a different treatment. And I think that actually the findings from, from adult studies is that if you have isolated vomiting and you're over the age of 16, the likelihood of there being something on your, you know, that needs intervention or observation or something on your CT is a lot higher and we should be taking that seriously. Okay. And, and that's, that's a sort of really interesting point to, to sort of just beware this slightly older child with, with vomiting, I guess. Um, just to, when, when it sort of says prolonged period of observation, did, did the sort of the, the papers that you look at give a recommendation for how long or is it just sort of longer than the four hours? No one really gave a, an indication of how long they were thinking, but it was longer than the four hours we have in the UK and you know, obviously out in New Zealand and Australia, they have less of an emphasis on having that direct cut off and leaving A&Es. But I think, you know, something sensible would be probably looking at about, you know, 12 hours or so just to make sure the children are getting better and or they're entirely resolved and have had a couple of, a couple of hours without any vomits. Yeah, and it's certainly, you know, if they come in later in the day, overnight observation is probably a safe and relatively sensible approach, isn't it? Yes, you wouldn't want to be sending home a child with uh, multiple episodes of vomit at 10pm to go to sleep at home because there's a very you know, ten- strong potential that they won't be looked at until late in the morning. So having done this, having done your search, having looked through these these papers, what, what did you feel was, from your perspective, the, the clinical bottom line? From my perspective, the clinical bottom line is if you truly have isolated vomiting in a younger child then you're safe to observe them for a period of time. You're safe to keep them um, in your A&E on your clinical assessment units to see what they do and delay the decision to CT until a later date and either choose to send them home when they've recovered or CT if they develop any other symptoms. But beware the teenager. And sort of having done this, did you kind of feed this back to your department or where you'd worked and, and pass that on to colleagues? So we already have a very um, very much similar same attitude in Sheffield. We tend to not CT children with isolated vomiting. We tend to admit them for a period of observation rather than um, subject them to radiation. And the whole department is moving away from CTing as much as many head injuries as we used to do. So I worked there first, worked there five years ago, and come back after a five year hiatus. And we've definitely we definitely scanned fewer children now than when I worked here before. I think it's just very much, a, like you said, a gradual change amongst the paediatric and A&E world that we should be observing these children. The more and more evidence that comes out, the more and more we're seeing this as the way forward. Absolutely. Um, and I guess the, the next sort of debate that that is not raging but is bubbling is the, do I do anything about this vomiting? Do I give an antiemetic and is that going to hide mask symptoms um and i guess that's sort of a, a discussion for another day potentially yes that is a always the question isn't it for any type of vomiting in children do do we give them on dantatron or not i think it's a medication that pediatricians are very uncomfortable using yes so we'll wait and see but, but it'd be interesting to see if over the coming months and years, whether actually local guidance, nice guidance evolves to go, actually, 
we've already sort of slightly downgraded vomiting as a symptom, whereas you used to automatically get get scan. Actually, whether it gets downgraded or removed entirely from the nice guidance in in due course. Yeah, I, I think it, I think we're probably work working towards that. I would I wouldn't imagine in five years' time we're going to be as um, concerned about about isolated vomiting as we are now imagine another five years time we'll have um have more evidence which will help us to create better guidelines or more up-to-date guidelines that will help us to inform our clinical decisions perfect um i've really enjoyed this chat helen um and um maybe it's because it just confirms my biases already maybe i should pick something that i totally disagree with next time but i've really enjoyed that um so thank you for doing the 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 work thank you for publishing it um was it sort of just last question then was it relatively easy to get this published was it a sort of straightforward process did you find yeah, so once you've written your clinical question, so if anyone's got a clinical question that they're asking themselves in their, their daily work, you know, once you've done the, the research behind it and you've got the papers, um, Dr. Bob Phillips, who is the editor at Archives, is very approachable. Um, he's always happy to be contacted. So you can contact him through the um, article submission online, and he's very helpful at giving back feedback and helping to structure it in a um, more publishable way and getting it out there in archives perfect uh that's great uh, hopefully more people will look at that and uh and have a go um so thank you very much for for joining us today helen no worries thank you very much